Is there life in the universe beyond Earth? People have made all sorts of guesses. We haven't heard anything out there among the stars yet. Does this mean we're alone? If there's one thing to understand, it's that the universe is big. Really, really big. And as they say in the movie Contact, if it's just us, that will be an awful waste of space. But earlier this month, an amazing discovery was made. A chemical called phosphine was located in the clouds of Venus, of all places. Now, phosphine isn't life, but it's what we call a biomarker, or a chemical that indicates that life may potentially exist there. If we discovered life in the universe, within our own solar system, no less, it would be a game-changer. This is Spark Dialogue Podcast. You can find us at sparkdialogue.com, on Facebook and Twitter, or wherever you find your podcasts. Spark Dialogue tells the stories of science and technology, and how they relate to our society, ethics, philosophy, and our place in the universe. I'm your host, Elizabeth Fernandez. A special thank you goes out to all of the supporters of this podcast. For this episode, supporters will have access to special content, including pictures and a video of the assembly and testing on one of the packages on the Jupiter Icy Moons Explorer. You can access this through the Patreon page at patreon.com sparkdialogue. And if you're not a patron and you want to become one, you can join by going to the website sparkdialogue.com or the Patreon page at patreon.com sparkdialogue. Hi, I'm uh, Niels Lichtring. I'm uh, a postdoctoral researcher at the University of Bern. And uh, yeah, I work on the planetary science and instrument development side of things. We'll come back to Venus near the end of this podcast. But in the meantime, let's talk about some other places that may harbor life. People say that the moons of Jupiter might be a place that life may exist. Or Mars. But no one ever talks about life on, say, the moon. What makes one place good for life and another not so great? At least life as we know it. When we look for other places in our solar system that might contain life, we we look at the example that we have right here on Earth. And we know that life on Earth requires things like water. It requires some energy. For example, think about photosynthesis. And you require nutrients. And this, this can just be atoms, other kind of building blocks that life might need. When we look at other planets and moons in our solar system, we basically look if those ingredients are present or maybe were present. Planets uh, that we uh, can investigate and, and also moons that we are looking at uh, basically need to, uh, to contain some of these ingredients for life. So Mars is a good case in this uh, example because it used to contain many of the ingredients of life. We think water was present there. Um, it definitely is catching sunlight, so that can help with the energy situation. And of course, building blocks of life are available in its rocky material. But other locations are a bit more peculiar, but nevertheless also very interesting for life. And those could, for example, be so-called ocean worlds uh, or icy moons. It's an interchangeable term used for these objects. Uh, But these are objects that are icy on its outside and have an interior liquid ocean. Famous example of that is uh, Europa, which is a moon of Jupiter, or Enceladus, which is a moon around Saturn. And besides this liquid water ocean that they have underneath their surface, they also have the energy input because this water is liquid. So some energy needs to be generated in the ocean to keep the water liquid. And 
it is in contact with their rocky core, and that helps with the situation for nutrients and building blocks from which life can start. Another key thing that astronomers look for is water. Water is essential for life as we know it. Some life on Earth may not need oxygen. Some may not need sunlight. But water seems like it's always needed. One reason is that water is a great solvent. As a polar molecule, all sorts of things can dissolve in it. Not every liquid can do this. That helps it dissolve organic molecules and rearrange them so that one day they might form the components needed for life. Water is actually the most important chemical compound that we look for simply because all life on Earth relies on it. And we know of no other situation of of life that does not require water to exist. This is the only template we have to go by, and and that's what we look for uh, in space then. Uh, Of course, there could be life out there that does not rely on water at all. So, for example, Titan, which is another moon of uh, Saturn, is thought to have these big lakes of uh, liquid methane at really low temperatures. And there has been some... Uh, ideas out there that maybe in those liquid methane lakes also life is existing. Uh, But it is life unlike anything we've ever seen on Earth. So for now, we rather stick with the water uh, because that is something we at least know and is a bit easier to look for. Okay, so you may have heard of Mars or the moons of Saturn as a potential place we may find life. But Niles mentioned another place in our solar system to look for life that really surprised me. Pluto. Pluto is a bit of a a new exciting object, let's call it. Yeah, we of course had uh, recently the uh, New Horizons mission fly by Pluto and it took a lot of measurements, uh, took some pictures of its surface. And one of the exciting things to see with Pluto is that its surface is very fresh. Um, Basically, it's smooth. And that is peculiar in our solar system because an object that is presumably 4 billion Uh, 4.7 billion years old, Um, it should have had a lot of impacts of comets and asteroids over over that duration. And that should have left craters in its surface. And if those craters are not there, then that means that there's some sort of geological activity going on uh, in an object, which uh, basically refreshes the surface. And in the case of Pluto, that could be an indication that there is actually water present below its surface. And um, that liquid water is every now and then spilling over to the surface and sort of refreshing or regenerating the surface. So, yeah, with that knowledge, then Pluto becomes an exciting object as well for the search of life because it's a very distant, far out planet. But apparently there is something going on that makes sure that there is liquid water there. So there is also some form of energy input. So maybe there are conditions that are right for life to emerge there. Now, you may be thinking... Wait a minute. Isn't Pluto way, way too cold? You may remember a term that astronomers who look for extrasolar planets toss around, the habitable zone. The habitable zone, also known as the Goldilocks zone, is that just right area around a star. Some place that is not too cold, not too hot. A place where liquid water can exist. Now, Pluto is way, way outside the habitable zone, as well as places like the moons of Saturn and Jupiter. So what gives? The habitable zone is really a zone for uh, the region where liquid water might exist on the surface of an object. Uh, But yeah, as we now know, there is uh, the possibility of having liquid water below surfaces. 
So in that case, this entire concept of, of the traditional habitable zone, as we could uh, name it, uh, it can be thrown out of the window, sort of. Um, and we just need to look for the conditions that are right to generate these liquid subsurface oceans. And the locations where they can be present are almost everywhere. As long as there is some sort of force that is uh, generating enough energy to melt water ice and create liquid water. And one of the main forces that is actually doing that is the tidal force between objects. So, for example, a moon rotating around a uh, planet that generates a so-called tidal force. And this can be converted in heat, warmth, and that warms up the ice, creates a liquid ocean. Now that we have some sort of idea of what life as we know it may need on a planet or a moon to start, how does it actually start? What gives it that special kick to move it from a lump of organic compounds into something more? This may be one of the single biggest questions in all of science today. The short answer, we don't know. But there are some theories. For life to start, we do think that you need to first create a certain set of molecules. Uh, of biomolecules, actually, from which uh, life can be formed. So the kind of molecules that we are interested in and that need to be formed quite early on for life to start are things like amino acids, uh, which we use nowadays to build our proteins in our body and, and all kinds of other useful machinery in which your body drives, um, but also uh, DNA fragments or RNA fragments. And these things are, for example, the nucleotides. So they, uh, these things need to form. There are, of course, a lot of uh, difficulties in forming these species, and especially in high enough concentrations and close enough together that there is a likelihood that all this stuff is reacting together and eventually forming more complex molecules, and after that, eventually life, perhaps. So what we need to have is locations where uh, there are sufficient building materials together um, in high enough concentrations to form these higher complexity molecules. And one of the ways to get this high concentration of material is with what is unofficially called the shallow pool theory. Basically, we have oceans of material, uh, material dissolved in these oceans, and then maybe they spill over into shallow pools where the water stays for a while, but then over time the water evaporates. And this enhances the concentration of material in those pools. Uh, it also enhances the salt content. It enhances the acidity of the, the pool. And in that way, you might be able to get the right conditions to generate a lot of biomolecules in one single location and further progress the chemical complexity and eventually start forming life. When trying to understand the origin of life, we can also look at some places that harbor life on Earth that is very, very different from the life we see around us day to day. One of these unique locations is at the bottom of the ocean, in the ecosystem found around a black smoker, also known as a hydrothermal vent. And these are locations where uh, water is being pushed into the interior of an object, and there it's being heated by internal forces, or for example, as, as we see on Earth, uh, magma streams. These bizarre objects spill out superheated water, around 750 degrees Fahrenheit. Rich in minerals, they host an ecosystem that looks quite alien. Three-foot-long tube worms, crabs covered with spines, and miniature octopi. 
but the strangest thing may be that there are no plants. What makes these ecosystems so special is that they don't need a photon of sunlight. Instead, they get their energy from the planet itself. Now, this heated water soaks up a lot of minerals, and the water, once it's heated up and full of minerals, is pushed outside into an ocean again. And what we then get is the so-called black smoker, um, which is just a plume of warm water full of minerals that's been sent out into the ocean. Now, what we have seen on Earth is that these locations can actually be quite beneficial to the formation of life uh, because all kinds of building blocks, uh, energy uh, and liquid water, of course, are present. So life can exist there. Black smokers might be great analogs to understand what may be found on other moons in our solar system. Why? Because we believe that many of these moons may have underground oceans. They are not catching sunlight, and which is on Earth actually one of the main ways to get the energy for life to exist. So if they don't get this sunlight, the black smoker is then interesting because this is still a, a way to, to get a life going in a very remote and dark place. First off, you may wonder, how do we know that these worlds may have an underground ocean when we can't see it? Actually, there are many clues that an ocean may be there. We get uh, several pieces of evidence that there might be subsurface ocean uh, from various space missions. One obvious way to infer that there might be an ocean is to look at the icy shell of one of the icy moons and basically check its cratering record. So the amount of craters that are in its surface. And if that is relatively limited, then that's an indication that the surface has been renewed. And from that, we can infer that there is some sort of geological activity going on, at least. And if that is the case in ice, then there is a likelihood that there is actually liquid water underneath that ice. Another line of evidence that we can look at is magnetic fields, actually. So if we look, for example, at Europa, uh, that is the moon that is orbiting around Jupiter and is moving around in Jupiter's magnetic field. So if you have an instrument that can pick up the magnetic field of Jupiter, you can measure that thing. Now, what we saw with those measurements uh, when the spacecraft came close to Europa is actually that you saw small deviations in the magnetic field. And a magnetic field can only be deviated by something that generates a current. So then you start doing some high-level modeling of that signal and you can infer that there is a liquid water reservoir which is moving around and generating this uh, magnetic field. But this liquid water reservoir also needs to be a little bit uh, salty. It needs to have ions. Uh, ions are capable of generating this field. Um, and then we measure that. And from that, we can infer that there is indeed a liquid water ocean underneath the surface of Europa. Uh, so Europa indeed has uh, large stripes uh, running across its surface. And those are actually also an indication that something is moving in the moon. And it basically looks a little bit like plate tectonics, what we have on Earth. And because the ice sheet of Europa is moving on a liquid water ocean, there is some tension in its surface, and that causes these cracks, presumably. So from those cracks, we can also see that something is going on in the interior of Europa. And again, we come to the conclusion that that must be a liquid water ocean. I find this idea of an underground ocean fascinating. For me, they're kind of reminiscent of the underground worlds found in Journey to the Center of the Earth. What might these oceans be like? 
But the oceans that we are talking about for the icy moons, they, um, there's not that much known about them. But we do roughly know that the ice shell that covers them is anywhere between 10 to 100 kilometers thick. It varies a little bit from object to object. Um, and under that, we have an ocean which is probably 100 kilometers in depth as well. And then again, here it also varies a little bit. And then in some cases, the ocean can be so deep that um, it actually uh, doesn't really breach the rocky core of the moon anymore uh, because the mass is so high that it actually is pushing the water below it into a new ice layer. So then we get sort of a, a double layered ice within there, in between there, a little bit of water. And that's one of the things that actually makes Europa and Enceladus interesting because in that case, we just have an ice layer, a water layer, and then a rocky core. And that's of course beneficial for life. Now, as for the composition of those oceans, we also don't really know that much about them. We do know for Europa that there's probably a high concentration of salts in there. And uh, for Enceladus, the same story. We think that there is quite a bit of salt in there and we can infer some statements about the acidity of the ocean, but that's about all we can say at the moment. Now it comes to finding life. This is where it gets tricky, really tricky. We are hundreds of millions of miles away from these planets and moons. We're even farther away from planets around other stars. We can't just train our telescopes on them and hope to see some aliens running around in a field. And of course, we won't be able to just see life within an underground ocean. So how can we actually find life on these planets from such a huge distance? So we're looking for um, signatures of life. One of the best ways to do this is to look for uh, molecules that are associated with life. And one of the things that you can look for is really the, the waste products of uh, biological processes. So a very obvious example is, for example, to look for oxygen, uh, O2, uh, which is produced by plants uh, on Earth. So if we, for example, target a telescope to an exoplanet or any kind of planet in uh, our solar system, then we could look for the signature of this O2 molecule and from that infer if life is present. Now, of course, just finding oxygen would not be enough because maybe there are non-biological processes by which it can be formed. So one of the best ways to do, go about it is to look for many different uh, types of waste products or gases that can be emitted by, by biological activity. And if you find multiple of them, then that could be a very strong indicator that life is present or at least some biological process is going on. So we can actually look for some of these waste products um, remotely from Earth. Uh, we just use a telescope and we look for a thing that's called the spectroscopic signature of, uh, of a molecule. And the spectroscopic signature is basically light that a molecule emits at very specific wavelengths, uh, which are dependent on its structure. Now, if we take a telescope that covers a certain wavelength, then we can see uh, if that wavelength is present in the light that is coming from a planet or any kind of other object. And in that way, we can look, let's call it the, for the spectroscopic fingerprint of a molecule. And from that fingerprint, we can infer all kinds of useful information, mainly if a, a certain molecule is there, but we can also determine how much of a molecule is there. 
When we are looking at planets around distant stars, this becomes even trickier. Remember, stars are many, many, many times brighter than their planets. Any observation of these planets would be lost in the glare of their starlight. But we can use this same trick. Of course, exoplanets are distant. Uh, they don't emit that much light, not like a star. So it's going to be difficult to see the spectroscopic signature. But you can use a trick. For example, use the transit of an exoplanet. And a transit is basically when an exoplanet is moving in front of its host star. And as it is doing that, light from the host star passes through a thin layer on the outside of the planet where its atmosphere is present. Now, as the sunlight passes through the atmosphere, the sunlight is absorbed by all kinds of molecules that are present in its atmosphere. And when that happens, we basically can again look for the spectroscopic fingerprint of a molecule that's indicative of life. And in that way, infer that indeed biological molecules are present in the atmosphere of an exoplanet even. But within our solar system, we may not just be limited to looking remotely. Now, places like Mars and Jupiter are far away, but we've gone there in the past. So sending a mission there to look for life isn't only out of the question, it's being done. At the moment, of course, looking for life on objects or on planets in our own solar system is, is one of the most exciting activities that we are doing. You may know, of course, about many uh, missions going to Mars. Uh, well, just uh, this summer, we had a new launch of the Perseverance rover, a NASA mission to the surface of Mars, and it's going to look for life in uh, an old river delta on Mars. Uh, but we're also looking at other objects. So there are a number of ideas to visit uh, icy moons and to study their inner oceans and what kind of uh, signatures of life we might find there. And one of the most uh, prominent ones is actually going to Europa, or is proposed to go to Europa. That's the Europa lander. The idea for this mission is to uh, have a space mission land on Europa's surface and there look for the signatures of life. We're all familiar with rovers on Mars. These cars on Mars drive around, slowly, very slowly, traversing fields of boulders and pounding on rocks to collect samples. But missions to these icy moons would be very different. So uh, compared to the, the Mars rovers that many of us know, um, a mission to Europa is substantially more difficult. And this simply has to do with the fact that we know so little about Europa itself. So we don't really know how its surface looks like. The best pictures that we have of Europa's surface have a resolution of about 10 meters. So that is not very good if you want to put down a lander, which is only a meter in size. Uh, so the first step that we need to take is actually really get a better understanding of what the surface looks of Europa. And there's various missions, uh, for example, the Europa Clipper, uh, that are going to take these better pictures. Now, from that, we can maybe find a suitable landing location, but then we still run into problems because we, for example, don't know if the surface can support the weight of a lander. Maybe the lander will uh, settle down and actually sink right away uh, into, the, into the ice. And that would be bad, <laughs> of course. <laughs> so there is a whole host of these kind of problems which we just don't know the answer of to as of yet. Uh, so hopefully... The space missions that are going to Europa in the near future can at least uh, get more information on its surface, so we have a better idea of how to work with our uh, lander. 
And then the lender is just the first step. If the lender is successful, then we can start thinking about maybe eventually putting a rover down. And in the same way uh, that we do on Mars, drive around on its surface and, and look at multiple locations that are interesting. This is super exciting to think about going to a moon of Jupiter and looking for an underground ocean. Could you imagine? But this faces another problem. These oceans are potentially hundreds of kilometers under the crust of their moon. Would we have to drill all that way? Yeah, so once we have the lander on the surface, of course, life or we think life might be present in its inner ocean. So there is a couple of kilometers ice between our lander and the location where we want to look for life. That's, of course, a problem. Now, you could think about drilling through this ice sheet, but this uh, presents a number of technological challenges, which we are just not ready to face yet. So what we instead will do is actually look for locations where water from its inner ocean has hopefully spilled over into the surface. And when it does that, it might contain all kinds of uh, biomolecules or maybe even uh, organisms completely intact, and those end up on the surface. And if we are lucky enough with the location where we put down our lander, we might be in the right spot uh, where organic material is present, and we can scoop that up and analyze it and maybe detect biomolecules and determine that life is present. Another cool idea. Some of these moons have plumes thought to originate deep within the underground ocean that shoot up 200 miles into space. Think sort of like Old Faithful on steroids. We can look for life within these plumes, too. Yeah, so indeed, one of the most exciting finds of uh, on Enceladus is indeed uh, its plumes. The, that's basically subsurface water that is being driven out through its icy shell and, and as a sort of volcano uh, being thrown out into space. And previous space missions, Cassini-Huygens mission, uh, actually, have flown through these plumes and they have some instruments on board that can pick up the contents of these plumes. And from the analysis of that data, they could actually see that there is indeed uh, molecules present in these plumes. And some of them are quite large, closely related to biomolecules, you could actually say. So we already have an indication that at least on Enceladus, there is very complex chemistry going on. Now, Enceladus is a bit of a special case because the moon is very light and its gravity is also very low. So that's why these plumes can uh, be thrown out into space at a very high altitude and you can quite safely fly past it with a space mission. For other places, that is not necessarily the case. And for example, for Europa, that is uh, one of the problems because we have some indications that there might be plumes present on Europa as well, but because Europa has a significantly higher gravity than that of Enceladus, these plumes don't go that, uh, that high up into the atmosphere. And you might be able to fly a mission through those plumes, but of course it becomes a very risky uh, endeavor if you need to go close to the surface of Europa. So for Europa, we really aim to land on its surface to detect complex molecules. Uh, because it's simply necessary. Going far away to look for life offers another problem. These missions are traveling far, far away. Not only does that make the mission take a long time, but it also means that it takes a long time for the Earth to communicate with the mission robotics. It takes anywhere from 5 to 20 minutes for a message to be sent from Mars to the Earth. That's one way. And this is even longer for a mission to the moons of Jupiter. 
when it comes to the distance to to Europa, that's of course a massive distance, and and communication will be slow. It will be um, on the order of hour or hours uh, before we have sent a signal to the Europa lander and received a signal to the Europa lander. There's also a bandwidth problem. You cannot send uh, that much information uh, over these vast distances. So whatever data you generated, it will be coming in on Earth at a very, very slow rate. So a number of things that you need to take into account is that the Europa lander would need to be very much autonomous. It needs to be able to do a lot of tasks on its own uh, after you just sent the signal to perform a certain task. Uh, the other thing is that the scientific data that you generate needs to be in very small data packages. So what you receive on Earth, uh, or basically most of the information already needs to be processed by the Europa lander itself. So you can send the smallest possible data package back to Earth, which helps with your bandwidth problem. And here's another problem that you may not have heard of before. Any mission, to anywhere at all, where we think may have life, has to worry about the possibility of contamination. Imagine little microbes from Earth hitching a ride and contaminating the Martian surface, or the surface of an icy moon. Not only could this be a risk of us bringing an Earth-based plague to another world, but it may mean that any life that we find on these planets or moons may have only been the hitchhikers brought by our machinery. Oops. This is a serious problem, and NASA even has an organization to deal with it, the Office of Planetary Protection. This is one of the biggest problems of space ethics that we have to deal with. Contamination of, of biological material from Earth to another location in the, in the solar system is, of course, a big problem. The first step is, of course, on Earth to be very, very careful in your mission preparation and simply decontaminate every component that you put on your space mission and do that to the best of your ability. Unfortunately, we have seen examples where it just hasn't been done good enough and we have found bacteria before on old uh, space components. Uh, but yeah, that is simply the key. Work as carefully as possible and clean as much as possible. Now, another thing that is, of course, very problematic, if you find life on a location, let's say Europa, what do you do after your mission is finished? Because maybe if you scoop up some ice from its surface, there is a couple of European bacteria in there, and those come alive again in the Europa lander as you are analyzing it. In principle, it's, it's a minimal problem because these species will never go back to Earth. Uh, it's not a sample return mission, uh, as that is called. Uh, but still, they would be living on Europa's surface. And that's maybe not something we want to have because it's outside of their natural habitat. So we don't know what this life will do. In that case, there is actually a trick that is specifically being developed for uh, the Europa lander right now. And that's to simply decontaminate the interior of the uh, mission after the mission is done. And this will simply be an incendiary device, which will heat up the interior of the mission to a couple of hundred degrees Celsius and completely wipe out every type of living organism that is there. So in that, in that sense, we hope to minimize contamination um, from both sides, both from Earth and on the location itself. Niles is part of a team to develop an instrument that may go to all of these faraway worlds. Named Origin, this tiny spectrometer may be able to detect evidence for life. 
When we started developing Origin, uh, that was very much driven by the need to find and detect uh, biomolecules on planetary surfaces or moons. And what we decided to go for is something that is called laser desorption mass spectrometry. The reason we do that is because mass spectrometry, uh, which is technology that is basically capable of measuring the mass of an uh, atom or a molecule, for example, a biomolecule, is a very sensitive technique. So if you really need sensitive instruments to, to measure tiny amounts of biomolecules, then mass spectrometry is the way to go. Now, I also said that there is laser desorption going on. Laser desorption is basically a fancy way to, with a laser, remove a little bit of solid material from a surface or, or any kind of other object and get up to the gas phase because mass spectrometers only work in the gas phase. You need to have stuff floating around in the gas. At the moment, we, we developed Origin just as an instrument. Uh, it's really to show like, hey, we have this instrument, it can detect biomolecules, and it can do so at very high sensitivity. Uh, but it's not specifically being developed for a space mission. So what we are doing now is really uh, showing the community that we uh, have a very well-functioning instrument, and then hopefully uh, we get to be signed on a space mission to investigate some object. So one of the space missions that we are actively talking with, uh, with the leaders of that mission, is the Europa Lander mission. And we try to convince them, of course, that our instrument is good at what it is and that they would need to uh, implement it in their space mission to look for biosignatures, uh, mainly the biomolecules on Europa. This mighty instrument may be able to find all sorts of things, biomarkers that may indicate the presence of life. So, in principle, Origin can look for and detect a whole range of different molecules, uh, biological and non-biological. Um, and many of them are interesting for all kinds of different purposes to determine something about the geology of a place, but then also to infer something about life. Uh, one of the main ones that we are putting our focus on now is actually amino acids. Um, and this is simply for the fact that amino acids are integral to life, but they're also kind of small. They are very much present um, on bird biosystems, at least. Um, so they might be a good target to look for. Um, but we shouldn't forget other biosignatures as well. For example, we can look at the molecules that make up cell membranes. Uh, they are called lipids. Uh, that is an interesting class of molecules to look at. We can look at the molecules that make up our DNA, uh, nucleotides and nucleobases. They're also very interesting uh, classes of molecules to look at. The only thing where we try to take into account is that um, there is a likelihood that we will detect these molecules. So one thing to consider is, for example, how quickly molecules degrade over time. And if you take that into account, then again, you come to the conclusion that, for example, amino acids are very good targets uh, for search for biomolecules. Going to these worlds and directly looking for life has many advantages over using Earth-based telescopes. We would be able to see potential biosignatures with a much greater sensitivity. So, yeah, one of the reasons to really go for uh, a mission that lands on the surface of a moon is, of course, to be close to potential biosignatures. That's the entire reason to do this. If you fly around with a space mission, you are looking from a high altitude. Any kind of signature that indicates life is being blended in this large field of 
other things, well, for an ocean world, mainly ice. So it's very easy to miss that with remote methods. And if we land on a planet or a moon, then we can use tools to actually investigate its surface and look for tiny, tiny traces of uh, biomolecules. This is all especially timely, because you may have heard the exciting news earlier this month. Scientists have discovered a biosignature of life within the clouds of Venus. Now let me take this time to be especially clear. Scientists did not find life on Venus. Instead, they found a chemical that is normally associated with life processes. And it's hard to explain what it's doing on Venus in such an abundance without life being present. Yeah, so the recent news about Venus is quite exciting because what they found in Venus is in its atmosphere a molecule that indicates some biological processes. Uh, it's called phosgene, and this molecule is known to be produced by uh, certain organisms on Earth. Now they found that uh, with a telescope, and they looked for this spectroscopic signature of this uh, of this molecule, and they actually found it in the atmosphere of Venus. And they found it over a large extended area of its surface. It's very interesting that this molecule is present, but what makes it more interesting is the fact that the levels at which this molecule are present, the amounts are very high. Uh, we are talking about 20 parts per million in the atmosphere, which sounds like a little, but it's actually quite a lot, especially considering that uh, this molecule is very easily destroyed uh, whenever it gets in contact with other molecules or with sunlight. Yeah, it starts processes that degrade this molecule. So when you model the atmosphere of Venus, you actually do not expect this molecule to be present uh, because most of it should be quickly destroyed. And then the high levels that we see now are basically saying like there is a process going on which is producing more of this molecule than is possible or than at least that we can think of right now. One of those processes might be uh, life. We don't know where these molecules come from without life. But perhaps equally, if not more perplexing, how can life exist in the first place on a place like Venus? The possibility that there is life on Venus is very peculiar, of course, because Venus actually on its surface is very hot. We're talking about temperatures of several hundred degrees Celsius. Uh, and at those temperatures, life, as we know it at least, cannot exist. So the idea is that this life is not present on Venus's surface but is actually living in its upper atmosphere. Yeah, it's basically floating around as particles in the upper atmosphere of Venus, uh, where it reproduces and um, happily lives its life. The reason that we think that if this life is present on Venus, it might be residing in its atmosphere is actually because the conditions are not as bad as they are on the surface uh, up in the atmosphere. So for example, the temperature is a lot lower. If we go to 50 kilometers altitude uh, in Venus, then the temperature is roughly what we have on Earth. So uh, a very nice uh, 30 degrees Celsius. Is If life is residing in these higher uh, atmospheric layers of Venus, uh, then of course it needs to uh, gather some uh, water there. Uh, so we think it might be living in tiny droplets that are present in the clouds of Venus. But having microbes floating around in the Vesuvian atmosphere has some problems too. First off, Venus's clouds are made of sulfuric acid. Not exactly the greatest place to live. But that's not all. 
In the atmosphere, there's also plenty of problems for life to exist. Uh, for example, on Earth, we don't know of any kind of organism that actually has a complete life cycle in the atmosphere. They're always in some way in touch with the surface. But in Venus, the entire life cycle of an uh, organism needs to be in the atmosphere. And that's also something we have never seen. But at least the conditions in the atmosphere of Venus are a little bit milder. That it is a better place for these uh, organisms to reside than on the surface of Venus. The origin instrument may be able to help in the case of Venus as well. So with our instrument, with Origin, we could actually still use it to uh, go look for life in Venus's atmosphere. Now, if we assume that this life is floating around in the atmosphere, what we would need to do is basically send a mission that will fly through the atmosphere, for example, a balloon uh, mission, and collect particles and droplets where life might be present in, and then we can analyze those droplets. So what we can do with Origin in that case is take these droplets and put them in Origin and basically see if certain biomolecules or other kind of tracers of life are present there and, and get their molecular signatures. If life exists on Venus, it would be different, very different, than life on Earth. For that matter, if we found life anywhere within our solar system, it would be a game changer. Yeah, finding a second location in, uh, in the solar system where life has emerged will, of course, be exciting. And it will potentially tell us a lot about how life formed on Earth. We might get clues about the range of conditions from which life can start. We might get clues about specific processes, how life can start. But one of the more exciting things that will happen is basically we will know at that point that there were two locations in the solar system where life was able to emerge. And on the cosmic scale of things, that makes it very likely that there is life on other locations as well. And it will basically tell us that life is very robust, very uh, easily formed and could be everywhere. And I think it's also going to tell us that there is a higher chance that we at some point find uh, intelligent life. For the first time, we would not only have one data point on where life has begun, we would begin to understand a little clearer where life came from in the first place. And if life evolved independently on two worlds within the same solar system, then life could be anywhere, everywhere. The universe could be teeming with life. And we would realize we share this cosmic home with others. Spark Dialogue Podcast is produced by me, Elizabeth Fernandez. You can find us on the web at sparkdialogue.com, on Facebook and Twitter, or any of your podcasting platforms. Remember, if you're a patron of this podcast, to check out the bonus material on patreon.com slash sparkdialogue. Thanks for joining us today, and we'll see you in two weeks for another episode. Some of the background music you heard is produced by me. Others are clips from Between Worlds by Austin Sater, Pumpkin Soup by Airtone, Mysterium by Dachshund Sigmund, and Nightwalk by Airtone. These are licensed under a Creative Commons Attribution 3.0 license. More information and links to these songs can be found in the show notes at sparkdialogue.com.